This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. I loved how you entitled this segment, Blair, <laughs> State of the Nation. As <laughs> Well, who better to tell us the State of the Nation than you, my friend? Mm-hmm. We're talking about Canadian debt levels, which in and of itself is a bit scary, so I'm glad you're, you're here to sort of... Uh, parade us through it all. So. Yeah, I thought kind of good, good timing. You know, we often do a monthly client wrap-up. And I thought, well, this year, there's a lot of research that's out right now about Canadian debt levels, um, some specific things about millennials that we'll talk about. And then also my professional association of trustees, they come out with some predictions for 2019. So I thought this can be kind of a topical um, current events type of a segment. Cool. And everybody everybody knows something about it because mm-hmm. you most of us have credit cards or know people who have credit cards if that's like the minimum. Um, but Consumer debt, especially this time uh, of the uh, of the end of the year, when we're you know getting ready for the big holiday mm-hmm. season, etc. Yeah, and you know, in a headline level consumer debt, it's big. It keeps going up and it keeps get, getting bigger. So, Oof. you know, as of October of this year, um, total Canadian consumer debt, and this is outside of mortgages, outside of car loans, and things like that, it reached a high of one point eight six trillion dollars. So it's just so big numbers you almost can't comprehend it. And but that's just Canadian. That's dollars. just Canadians. Oh. So yeah, obviously in the U.S. it's a you know factor of ten or or, or something Oof. similar to that. But what's interesting to me is it's up five point four percent from a year ago and two percent just from three months ago. So if you think about your wages, you know Elaine has the average person gotten a five percent raise in the last year. I Absolutely don't think not. so. They're definitely not making two percent more than a few months ago. Right. So again, that whole balance of income versus ability to service debt, um, it seems like it's going further and further out of whack. Now on a. The, uh, you also talk about here the delinquency rates. And can mm-hmm. you explain, first of all, what a delinquency rate is? Yeah, so a delinquency rate is measured as when you're more than 90 days out of, um, basically out of step with what you should be doing on your obligation. So if you've missed more than three payments, essentially three payments, three months, 90 days, you're delinquent on your accounts. Okay. And this is often a measure that, um, you know, the credit rating bureaus, they'll put out, out all their stats and they'll say, yeah, things are worse and worse and, you know, there's more, more debt for people, but don't worry because delinquencies are still really low. And that's exactly what came out in October as well. So Equifax, which is one of the big credit rating agencies, um, they said the delinquency rate is still really low and it's down about 3% since last year with just 1.1% of borrowers being more than 90 days delinquent. Okay, when I first read that, I thought, Yahoo, that's great news. That's Mm -hmm. terrific news. But it's really not. Yeah, because essentially what a lot of people that I see uh, are doing is just using credit to pay credit. They're making one minimum payment by taking car cash from another one. They're using credit for their living expenses. So it doesn't take a whole lot to not be delinquent. You just have to make those minimum payments. But we all know if you're stuck in a minimum payment cycle, even $6,000 a debt can be 30 or 40 years of those minimum payments. So just not being delinquent, that doesn't mean that you're still doing okay. Right. And that's really important to know because we'll see a headline that will, will, they will talk about that. And you think, oh, like I did when I first read, I thought, oh, that's a good thing. But no, it's not because mm-hmm. we're not, we're not dealing with the debt itself. We're just sort of 
Well, like maintaining it. Yeah, you're just kicking the can down the road, so right. to speak, and eventually you'll have to deal with it. So I expect those delinquency rates will rise. Um, but as of now, they are staying low because it seems that people are still able to get enough extra credit. Um, and, you know, sometimes people go down the cycle of they can't get a credit card, so they use a payday loan for a period of time or some other high interest financing. None of that shows up on a delinquency rate. Got it. So why is debt increasing so much? Well, there's a couple of reasons for it. And probably the number one one has to really come down to interest rates. And, you know, interest rates are rising, we all know, over the last couple of years, and that's leading with people, leaving people with less disposable income, which often means that they're not able to pay off their credit card bill in full. So if you've got less dollars coming, coming in the door, for example, because other costs are higher, um, then you're not able to always clear your debt, which means obviously your debt levels go up. Uh, what's also coming to this is that economic growth seems to be slowing. Um, so there could be an impact on employment rates. You know, if people go into debt pretty significantly when their income is interrupted, they have to take some time off or if they're downsized, which un- unfortunately is happening more and more. Got it. And of all the groups that we talk about, who is feeling this the most right now? Yeah, it's not a happy story, Elaine. It's actually senior citizens. Um, they've seen the highest rise in delinquency rates. And again, to me, this is kind of the leading indicator that there's going to be you know bigger problems later is when you see delinquency rates rise. Um, and senior citizens, they've went up by 4% year over year. So basically four times as high as the general population. Okay. Um, now you talked about that we're going to talk about millennials, mm-hmm. and I, let, let's do that here. Yeah. Um, so millennials are what? Are they well, even aware of the economy, or they seem to be doing a better job with credit, which really surprised me. So um, ten years ago, the average credit score for young adults, age eighteen to twenty-four, it was six eighty-one, and you know anywhere from six hundred to eight hundred is where you're starting to get you know good credit. You generally would want a little bit higher than six sixty or so, but so the average credit score 10 years ago for that age group was 681, uh, well, today it's 692. Okay, so Yahoo, it's just like the delinquency rate. It looks like it's all good news. Well, and it's interesting too, is that's the only demographic where the credit score has actually went up. Every single other demographic, it's actually declined. Which is the which is the bad thing, right? When you're when the credit when your credit rating is low, mm-hmm. that means you you don't have a great you don't have great access to credit. That's right. right. It usually means if you're going to get credit, you're going to be paying a higher cost for it. You might not be able to access it at all. And usually, it means that hey, you've started to miss some payments, or you're overextended, or you're using too much of your credit, for example. Um, so I think what we've seen with millennials is this is a factor of they're just starting to get credit earlier in life. Um, you know, people as young as 18 on a university campus, for example, they're getting those first credit cards even more quickly than they were before. And usually for your first few years of credit use, you're very careful. You know, you don't miss any payments, you don't charge over your limit, um, all of these different things. So, um, you know, I, I think it's it's a case that millennials are just starting to get into the credit game a little bit more quickly, and they seem to have bought into the idea that this credit rating is something that you need to pre- you need to preserve. You need to try to make sure you've got great credit at all stages in your life. Well, who who sets the credit? Like, who? How is it good news? A credit good credit rating? Like who 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 sets it? Who mm-hmm. tells us that? What does it actually mean? Yeah, and, that, and those are good questions. You know, who tells you the credit's great? Well, it's basically it's implicit in all of your financial transactions is the people are going to pull a credit report. But this idea that, you know, we want to have perfect credit all the time, I think it's because we don't have that many indicators for us to consider on an individual basis. Are we doing well or not? So we hold on to the one that's easily accessible, which is our credit rating. But our credit rating doesn't measure anything about are we saving money? Are we actually financially smart with our money? Are we living within our means each month? All it measures is are you paying your bills? 
bills as you're supposed to? Are you making your minimum payments? Are you not overextending by going over your limit? Um, and are you not going delinquent? But there's a whole lot of other factors that can really impact, um, you know, whether you're actually financially successful or not. So I think the message to millennials is, you know, credit rating is important, uh, but make sure you're considering your overall financial health because every other demographic has seen that credit rating decline in 10 years and millennials haven't. So sometimes that means that maybe there's too much of a fixation on this target at the expense of other things. Got it. And I think this is a really important point. It just stuck out when I was re- getting ready for this segment. Um, the credit rating is just a measure of how profitable mm-hmm. you are for the banks. Yeah, that's how it was originally developed. It was a customer profitability measure, and then they started to just use that more and more. So it was never intended to be something that individually we you know, evaluate our financial solvency and financial strength on. Um, but you know, now it's being used more and more for other purposes. Got it. Um, I, I like the idea that the millennials are more optimistic about their financial future. Mm-hmm. I, think that's a, I think that's a positive thing. Yeah, I would say so for sure. And, and sometimes I wonder, especially being in the lower mainland, you know, where the optimism comes from, because all we hear is you know, the doom and gloom of house prices and wages and things like that. But nationally, um, it, millennials, which are age 18 to 34, um, they're significantly more optimistic about their financial future. 82% are optimistic compared to about 73% of the general population. So that's a pretty big difference there that they believe in their early income earning years that they will be able to be financially successful in the future. Why are they so optimistic? I think it's a bit of a lack of experience. <laughs> to, to, it must to, be, to, right? To be frank, they yeah. don't have a clue <laughs> yeah, what's ahead. And one of our future segments, Elaine, I've got some research where we actually went to campus and we asked people, you know, what do you expect to make after graduation? You know, what do you think your salary is going to be six months from now, from graduation, a year or five years? In almost every case, people expected to step into, you know, the top 5% of income earners within six to 12 months of graduation. And we know, you know, the average wage in, in Canada is between thirty dollars and $40,000 a year. There were no graduates that thought they were going to do that poorly. So I think there's a big sense of optimism um, that is going to be tamped down when people find that, yeah, the world is, is a little less forgiving than we would like it to be. Yeah, I think it's na- naivety, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the, it must be. And God bless millennials, right? I mean, nothing bad. But I think there's so many things about how millennials grow up and yep. the, uh, the ideals that they get handed down or handed to them based on how they're treated, et cetera, et cetera. They just think life's awesome, and it is, but man, it's... Uh, you know, it's also rough. Get a helmet. Yeah, well, financially, it, it can wear you down. And then the research shows that because another couple stats that I, I pulled together um, is, you know, the age 45 to 54. So this should be prime income earning years, you know, getting ready for retirement. A full 27% of Canadians said they're not able to save money on a monthly basis. So think about that. They're living, you know, paycheck to paycheck, not able to put money away, and they know they're not going to be able to earn income for, you know, not the rest of their life, but maybe they've got about 20 years of income earning left, and they can't save money. That's not good. Um, And even forgetting about age ranges, a full 35% of Canadians say that they can just cover their expenses. Um, So a lot of folks are really stretched these days, and that's why I think the millennials' optimism, I hope it carries through and it continues, but looking at older demographics, they're a lot less optimistic. Yeah, and millennials, for the most part, I mean, I'm sure there are are some, but you know, not having, they don't have children yet. They're not married yet. They don't have children yet. And those kinds of things are the things that really tax parents. And when I look at the next age group, 25, 34, well, that's when, uh, that's where they're having children. And so of course they're not as optimistic because life's a bit harder at that point. There's a lot going on mm-hmm. at that point. Yeah. And that demographic specifically, Elaine, the 25 to 34, and this was kind of a depressing thing during my research here, uh, but you know, they believe that their standard of living is worse than their parents experienced at the same age. 
So, you know, we're always used to thinking, okay, you know, kids are going to do better and grandkids and so on and so forth. But this might be the first generation where we think, you know, actually our parents had it a little bit easier when they were 25 to 34. They could afford a house. They didn't have to, you know, earn the top 1% of income to be able to get into the real estate market. Well, so that's true. that demographic is really feeling like, wow, we're getting a bit of a bum deal compared to the generation that came before us. Well, that's interesting. I never thought of it that way, but I guess it all depends on where you fit into the on, into the generation scale that you would think your parents were better off. And and I don't know if that's always true because not everybody's going to tell you everything that's that went wrong or didn't yeah. go well for them either, right? <laughs> that's right. Like, you remember the, the good things, not ex- the bad. Exactly. Yeah. Parents aren't going to do that. So what do millennials need to consider, do you think? Well, I think it's it's a case of, you know, you've got to start saving almost from your first paycheck if you really want to achieve these financial goals and maintain your optimism. So, you know, it's the tried and true for a good reason, you know, to pay yourself first and put money aside and be very careful about credit as you go forward. It's all too easy to just fall into a trap of taking all the credit offers and making the minimum payments and not saving money and not building wealth. So I think millennials need to be very focused on what can you save, not what credit rating do you have. So if you're feeling a bit under the debt crunch and you want more information about how Blair Manton and Sands and Associates might be able to give you a bit of a hand or a help, uh, go to their website. It's terrific. It's sands-trustee.com. It's just filled with really good information, lots of questions and answers for you. Or if you'd like to call and get that free consultation, you can do that easily. The number is 1-800-661-3030, and, uh, as well as to find an office near you. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. We've been doing this uh, in the show previous. It's called Bankruptcy Myths. And uh, we've talked about key myths and misconceptions that, I don't know, pretty much everybody has about bankruptcy. There's uh, so much fear and uncertainty around bankruptcy that so many folks... Um, just kind of stay in debt because bankruptcy is so scary. I mean, the word, we've talked about mm-hmm. this before, the word itself is so scary in, in today's language. And it hasn't changed, right? <laughs> yeah, everything is pretty well designed to scare you the heck away from this legal remedy. Um, and really, yeah, if there was no upside, you would never go bankrupt. Why would you put yourself through it? But when you're dealing with just this incredible, insurmountable mountain of debt, when you're having collectors call you 12, 13 hours a day, uh, when you're worried about being able to feed yourself, let alone your family, you know, sometimes you need a way out. And that's what bankruptcy does. Right. So I think, yeah, I'm really happy to do these segments, Elaine, because I know there are people because they come in and see me in my office and say, you know, I was so scared of this happening and you're telling me it's not going to happen. I wish I'd known that sooner. I would have came in and I wouldn't have suffered for so long. And the first one really, and we'll just briefly go over some of the pieces of it, yeah. um, I'll, I'll lose everything. Yeah, so right? that, that's, that's what people think. That's everyone's, you know, five second um, understanding of bankruptcy. As you go into bankruptcy, you lose everything. Okay, and even myself, you know, before I got into this industry, I thought, well, yeah, you go bankrupt when you when you have nothing left, and even what little you do have is taken from you. You know, why would you want to ever do that? But it's it's quite the opposite, actually. Most people that go through a bankruptcy, they actually keep all of their assets. There's very few things that are seized from them, uh, and the reason for that is provincial governments have legislation that exempts certain assets. Exempt means that you keep them no matter what happens to 
you. And again, just briefly, there's an exemption for all of your household goods and your furniture. There's an exemption for your clothing. No one's going to take, obviously, clothes off your back, as weird as that would be. You keep everything. Um, there's an exemption for a vehicle if it's worth less than $5,000. And if you have a financed vehicle, that means, you know, do you have equity in that vehicle of more than $5,000, which most finance vehicles, you have zero equity. Um, and you're allowed to keep your tools of the trade. So if you need something to earn income, you know, if you're a musician or, you know, a construction worker or a doctor, anything like that, a dentist, you have certain tools that you need, you, those can never be taken from you. So most of the time people think they lose everything in a bankruptcy. Most people don't lose very much. Oh, that's, see, I just think that's so reassuring for folks because, um, because the word is so scary and and it's just one of those loaded terms. There's so much to it that people can't even think about it. And the one thing that, you know, that you mentioned uh, in the beginning is we all know making minimum payments is not going to get rid of this. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's, and that's really important to remember. Oh, yeah. okay. Even a $6,000 debt can be 40 years of making yeah. minimum payments. So you're not doing anything if you're just making minimums. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, let's continue on then. What yeah. are the other, what, what are the other things that we are, that we sort of have built in misconceptions about? Yeah, this one is getting better and better. But my God, Elaine, two years ago, I was having so many people come into my office. It was breaking my heart because they were doing the wrong thing with their RRSPs. So I think, and uh, hopefully we've played a small role in this, but I think the consciousness, the knowledge base is out there more knowing that RRSPs are your retirement funds and they can never be taken from you. They can only get into jeopardy is if you start to withdraw those funds, if you start to cash in your RRSPs to pay off your debt, well, then you can very quickly cash in all of your RRSPs and hopefully you paid off your debt, but then you've got no retirement left. Right. So what people a few years ago in my office were consistently coming in and saying, you know, I was told by the bank or I was told by a collection agency that if I don't cash in these RRSPs, they're just going to take them from me anyway. So that's what I did to make the pain stop. And would a bank, would a bank actually say that? Well, one of the big banks, of course, they would never say it corporately, but would an individual agent acting on their own behalf or perhaps even misinformed? Yeah, that does happen. Oh, Regularly it happens. That's we know the, awful. Yeah, we know the banks are being investigated for sales practices. And yes. yeah, I think overall they're very good corporate citizens, but there are rogue actors. And sometimes, you know, the incentive system of who gets a bonus for what can drive bad bad advice to clients. See, and I'm so naive that I think our Canadian banking system is so pure and so clean and mm-hmm. so innocent of all of those awful things that we read about that happen in other countries. Um, but that's, it sounds like I, I'm just being naive. Well, and again, not tarring everybody with the same brush, but sure. there are bad actors everywhere. And sure. the answer for the client or the, for the consumer is just to be informed and to treat your RRSPs as if it was a company pension plan. You can't cash in a company pension plan. If you go into bankruptcy, you're going to keep that company pension plan. Same thing with RRSPs. Even if you had enough RRSP money to pay off your debts, I would still suggest at least come in, talk to a trustee, see what the options exist to deal with the debt, because almost always the wrong answer is cashing in your entire retirement. You pay off the debt. And then you know what? A couple of years later, you might be back in debt and you don't have any retirement to fall back on. Exactly. Okay. Uh, length of time that a bankruptcy takes. Yeah. So another big myth is, you know, bankruptcy takes years to complete. Um, you know, I hear people saying it's going to be seven years or 10 years or more. Um, and the facts are for 80% of people, bankruptcy runs for nine months. So less than a year. Wow. Not even a year. Yeah. Not the six, seven years, not, you know, multiple years for the average person who files for bankruptcy, who's not earning a whole lot of money. They're considered low income. They've never been bankrupt before. They're in bankruptcy for nine months. 
Okay. Where the six or seven years comes from is after a bankruptcy is over, there's a credit rating impact of six years after the bankruptcy is finished, but that doesn't mean you're untouchable. Most right. people rebuild their credit within just two to three years of a bankruptcy. If you phone up any mortgage broker and you just say, hey, hypothetically, if I went into bankruptcy, how long would it take for me to qualify again for a mortgage? They'll say, well, if you did everything right after the bankruptcy, if you didn't miss any payments and you saved some money and you've got a decent income, literally two to three years, you could have dealt with a horrible financial situation, rebuilding your credit, and then suddenly be mortgage-worthy again. Very good. Um, Another myth Mm -hmm. or misconception is that um, somebody's going to come to my house and go through my stuff and tell me what I can and cannot keep. Exactly. I have a number of clients, and sometimes this really comes from various, um, you know, different home countries. So perhaps recent immigrants. Um, you know, in certain communities, I know if you file for bankruptcy, there's literally someone that comes to your house, does an inventory, puts a red tag on your door, a red tag on your furniture, and things like that. Um, if I had to visit everybody's house who filed a bankruptcy with me, I'd do nothing else other than visit houses. Sure. Um, so it's just something that's not done. Right. So a trustee is never going to visit your house. Um, a trustee is going to basically depend um, that this is a serious legal process. You're going to be wearing an affidavit in my presence saying, I have legally disclosed everything to you. It's full and complete to the best of my knowledge. And again, from my experience, people that I deal with, they're honest. They're just unfortunate. Things have happened to them. And you know, if they had the Van Gogh hanging on the wall or the baby mm-hmm. grand piano in the living room, that's been long sold to try to pay the debts. Right. So, you know, essentially bankruptcy depends on the individual to be honest and declare their assets fairly. Um, but a trustee, as a matter of course, does not show up at anybody's house. And it's to their advantage to tell you Everything. Yeah. Oh, 100%. Right? Yeah. It really is. Yeah. And I, you know, I don't think I have too many clients who don't tell me 100%. But yeah, if something comes to light later on in the process, well, then, you know, they suddenly lose that that presumption that they're honest, but unfortunate they've been in a tough situation. If it looks like, you know, they're trying to use a bankruptcy for personal gain, um, you know, the courts can, can kind of sniff that out over time. But, you know, less than a percent, maybe a tenth of a percent of the people that I see would be anything other than, you know, honest, but unfortunate people. What about um, what about if your situation is that you're uh, wanting to move, change residences for whatever reason, whether it be yeah. work or a family situation, or you just want to get out of Dodge mm-hmm. uh, and live maybe a, a more simply life, a simple life, uh, or travel if yeah. you want to s- see something? Yeah, and people have an assumption that you know if you file a bankruptcy, well, you surrender your passport. Or you you lose any right. rights, you know, to change jobs or to have interprovincial mobility or things like that. Essentially, you're surrendering a bunch of your rights as a Canadian. It's like a mo- It's like a mo- It's like scenes from a movie that we've yeah. all seen, right? Yeah. That oh. you have to surrender your passport. Yeah. If we could put together that composite movie of how bankruptcy is portrayed, exactly. my God, it's all wrong. It uh, is. No, the answer is there's zero impact on your passport, zero impact on your citizenship, your ability to travel. There's no direct link that I've ever seen, and I would know of anything with our Customs and Border Patrol and whether somebody owes money or is in a bankruptcy or not. So oh. you, you don't need to be concerned. You know, if you were in bankruptcy, if one of my clients says, "Can I travel?" I say, well, yeah, sure, as long as you can afford to do so, because obviously there's no credit anymore. But if this person's able to save a bit of money and do a bit of traveling, no issue for me as long as they've complied with the bankruptcy. Now, I know this is, uh, and we're just, we've got just a few more seconds, but it, and that, so that's moving or or traveling across the border as well, right? Yeah. I mean, it seems that the border officials seem to know so much about Mm. us, but they wouldn't necessarily know that. No, absolutely not. 
Excellent. If you'd like uh, more information from Blair, from Sands & Associates, check out their website, sands-trustee.com, on this or any topics that we cover on the show. Or call 1-800-661-3030 for that th- free consultation and to find an office near you. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. And in studio with us is Mark Fidget. Hey, Mark. So glad you could be here. Always grateful to be back, Elaine. (laughs) And Mark's a Vancouver-based mortgage consultant and broker, has over 20 years of experience. He's a member of the Verico Mortgage Network and the driver behind this website. Uh, jot it down if you like, www.advancedequity.ca. Uh, he's been on the show Dollars and Cents with us before. He's also a frequent speaker on the topic of mortgage debt and personal finance. And uh, let's just start right off the bat about being a mortgage broker. It was something that was literally a brand new concept to me a number of years ago, but not like 100 years ago, but just like maybe 20 years ago or 15 years ago. I'd never heard of them before. And I guess you you come across that, that people have no idea what a mortgage broker is. And so let's talk about, first of all, what that is so people know. Yeah, great question, Elaine, and uh, one I'm sure many have. Uh, A mortgage broker is a licensed professional mortgage specialist, uh, basically with knowledge of the entire mortgage market, access to over 40 lenders, so a lot of lenders, not just your basic banks, which traditionally is what uh, people have kind of been trained to believe. Uh, They negotiate on your behalf to find the best option for you, and one of the best parts it's free. See, and that's the coolest thing. Mm-hmm. I was so shocked when my husband said, oh, yeah, we're going to go with a mortgage broker. And I said, a what? And he said, <laughs> oh, yeah, the, he, he's going to get us this great deal. He, he's gone to this bank and that bank and that bank. And then he played the two banks against each other. And we came up with the best uh, rate possible. And it was awesome. And I was so impressed. I had no idea that that was possible. Yeah, and, and just echoing your experience, Elaine, you know, I deal with, with clients all the time. We're talking about, you know, the next step of after they're finished with the bankruptcy or the proposal, you know, how do they move on? And almost always real estate is a goal. And I was sitting down with a young couple and talking about, you know, saving the down payment, this number of dollars per month, and that's going to get us to the 20% eventually. And then when I talked about how are you going to go and get your mortgage, they started to say, well, you know, I'll make an appointment with the bank. I'm going to sit down, you know, I've known the manager there for a while. He's probably going to give me a little bit better than the posted rate. And, you know, I didn't come across the table by any means, but I said, you know, just stop, right? You know, just understand there are professionals out there that for no cost to you, you might end up with a better outcome, Mark. And that's why I'm thrilled to have you on the show today, just to explain to the listeners, here's what a mortgage broker is. It's not too good to be true. It's something, you know, Elaine, clearly you've used. I've used multiple times as well. And I've been really happy with the outcomes here. So, you know, Mark, something important to us too is obviously letting people know they're dealing with, you know, accredited professionals, certified professionals. What type of qualifications does a mortgage broker have? How does someone get into that? And what's the requirements? Right, Blair. So, Firstly, there's the educational requirements, and that's offered through a program out of the UBC, out of UBC, University of British Columbia. There's the actual licensing requirement after that. So, assuming you pass the course, um, you would then apply to FICOM for rate for to be licensed. And FICOM mm-hmm. is the Financial Institutions Commission. They oversee all the financial institutions, credit unions, pension funds, 
And uh, like I say, needless to say, it's a highly regulated uh, industry, mm-hmm. probably similar to the industry probably. you're in. Yeah. <laughs> Lots so, of red tape. <laughs> so no one can call themselves a mortgage broker unless they've went through these types of things. If you're dealing with somebody that's accredited, you know. You've Correct. got regulatory body, dispute resolution, all that stuff. 100%. Right? Good stuff. So we touched on a little bit about the advantages of working with a with a mortgage broker. I know that you, I mean, mine was really simple. I th- consider that my experience was pretty simple with it. But I know that there's many more advantages to working with a mortgage broker. Correct. And I, and I think, you know, you touched on going back in time. Mortgage brokers have been around for a long time. And historically, many people believed you only went to a mortgage broker if you had credit issues mm-hmm. or you couldn't qualify for a mortgage. Okay. Yeah, so if the and bank says no, this is your second bet. That was where it started. 100%. Oh, didn't oh it? interesting. Okay. And, you know, mortgage brokers can absolutely help you with that. But there's a whole much, there's a whole lot more to it. And then as time went on, it was more about, like you said, your husband said, oh, he can get us a, a great rate. And that was kind of where it kind of stuck, where go to a mortgage broker for the best rate. But there's absolutely so much more to that. Um, more recently, you'll find that a mortgage broker has access to, like I said, to over 40, 40 lenders. So, you know, mm-hmm. you're not just getting the one product. If you go to the bank, you're traditionally dealing with an unlicensed uh, person who's selling a lot of things. They're, you mm-hmm. know, they checking account, savings yeah. account, RSPs, right. and so on. A mortgage broker works for you, has access to over 40 lenders. Wow. And, and Blair, we talked a little bit about monoline lenders. This is a big benefit to uh, the clients who work with mortgage brokers. Monoline lenders are just like the title. It's a, it's a lender that only deals in the mortgage industry. So it might be someone you've never heard of. Correct. And traditionally, most don't even know what a monoline lender is. But mm-hmm. if you went to a lot of people that have dealt with mortgage brokers, you're going to find that their mortgage has been put with a monoline lender because not only have they had the best rate, but they've had the best prepayment privileges. They've got uh, best better transfer transfer in, porting, things like that. So there's a, a lot of benefits to a monoline uh, lender, which, like I said, is only available through a mortgage broker. And just pausing there, Mark, so you couldn't access, an individual consumer couldn't access these lenders unless they were working through a broker. Is that correct? Correct. Wow. So it actually opens up a lot more of the market than an individual would have access to otherwise. Yeah, and like Elaine said, most people believe it's just the bank. That's their only option. So, you know, if if there's other products out there, you're not going to be... If you go to a Scotiabank or a TD Bank, they're going to be selling what that bank offers. Mm -hmm. They're not going to be telling, well, geez, there's a better deal over here, there's a better deal over there. That's what the mortgage broker does for you. And and something you said that that kind of hit me as well, Mark, is you were saying the person that might be selling you the mortgage in the bank might not be a mortgage specialist. They might not be heavily trained. If you put them toe-to-toe against a mortgage broker, there'd be a difference. Would you, would you well, say so? I would say 100%. Hmm. And, you know, you don't, no one tells you that. And right. if you don't know what a mortgage broker does, you're going to a bank to get a mortgage thinking that's the best option for you. But, you know, we talked about this earlier. There's, there's so many things to a mortgage. There's prepayment privileges. There's prepayment penalties, interest rate differential, collateral charges, Rental addbacks, open, closed, fixed versus variable. Hmm, there's a bunch I mean, of those terms that, yeah, I think yeah, I mean, people start to glaze over. Or, <laughs> exactly. or what's the benefit? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you're going to not only explain those things to me, but you're also going to help me figure out the, the best institution that's going to provide those things the best way or the easiest for me to understand or, or utilize, I guess? Correct, Elaine. And then we're, we're with you 
the whole way. Right. We're not just you know getting into a mortgage and then see you later. We're with you on renewal. We're with you with the whole process. Hmm. So cool. you've got some clients, Mark. You've helped them with multiple mortgages, I assume, right? A hundred percent. Yeah. And one of the comments I always get, Elaine, like you said, is, geez, I wish I'd done this before. Or I, I, I wish I knew about this before. So it's a, it's a challenge letting people know what, what does a mortgage broker do? What's the benefit for you? Hmm. And Mark, just one of the points that, that you made there about a standard charge versus a collateral charge. First off, can you just give our listeners just a quick 30-second definition of what that is? And then is that something important to consider? Well, it, a lot of banks will tell you that a collateral charge is a benefit to you. And what a collateral charge is, if you go to, say, purchase a property for a million dollars and you need a mortgage for 500000 the bank may say, listen, let's, let's do a collateral charge. Let's put a charge on your property for, say, 900000 or a million dollars, even though you're just getting the five hundred, mm-hmm. but it's a benefit in the, in the future for you because if you ever want more money, it's already done, it's registered. But what they fail to tell you is, firstly... Nothing happens for free. You don't just get more money. You have to qualify it firstly. And secondly, it takes away the opportunity to shop for a better rate in the future because you can't transfer or port a collateral charge mortgage for free. Oh, so it locks you in. It locks you in, and they okay. know that. And they, but hmm. you know they're selling the benefits. So one of the, like okay. I said, one of the benefits of a, a monoline lender is they aren't collateral charge mortgages. Interesting. And then uh, just to add to it is the fact that we only pull one credit bureau and we can use that credit bureau at all these institutions to find the best rate for you. Whereas if you were to shop, say, at three banks, you walk Mm -hmm. in there, you fill out an application, you've given the bank authorization to access your credit. And as you know, Blair, um, credit inquiries factor in your credit score and your credit goes down. Oh, yeah. It could knock you down, you know, 30 to 50 points if there's multiple inquiries. And it's funny, Mark, because I tell people if they're shopping for a car to do exactly that print out their credit, show it to them, and only when you're making the deal, allow them to check your credit. But a broker does all that for you. You do it once, and then they shop it around. Yeah, and and it's just exactly what you're saying. You're telling the client how to do it, Mm. whereas this is like someone trying to do what you do by themselves. They don't know this, and the bank's not going to tell them, listen, we're pulling your credit. Usually, it's just your sign here on the application, and in small, tiny print, almost illegible, (laughs) is an authorization form saying, you know, we're going to pull your credit. Right. Okay, but Mark, you're a smart guy. And how is it advantageous to you as a mortgage broker to just pull one credit bureau or, you know, go to one place for my, my credit history? So it's not so much that it's an advantage for me, it's an advantage for you. I understand that, but doesn't that put you in a bit of a precarious situation? Like you may not know everything you need to know about me before you negotiate. Like, how do you look after yourself? How do you protect yourself? So are you saying if you come to me and I haven't looked at your credit? Yeah, you haven't gone further enough or I haven't told you everything or whoever you went to to check it out doesn't have, you know, all the bad news, uh, just maybe some of the good news. Or, or am I just being... Yeah, so I usually have all that. So if you're filling out an application with me, Got it. I'm pulling your credit. I know exactly what I'm dealing with. And then I can use that. What I'm saying is if I go to different institutions, I don't have to pull another credit bureau. Got it. So it's one credit bureau we use we use anywhere right. versus if you were to do it by yourself and go to say three different institutions, 
they're going to each need to pull a credit bureau on you. You can't take the one you used at Scotiabank and walk into TD. You can tell them your situation, but they're going to want to pull your credit bureau. Got it. Okay, I got it. I understand now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, Elaine, I feel like we could talk about this topic for a long time, Mark, and there's so many positive things to, to share about, I think, working with a mortgage broker. We're down to our last couple minutes, Mark, and I'm wondering what do you think is most relevant for our listeners to talk about? Maybe considerations of somebody is self-employed, or should we talk about impact of kind of new rules and what you're seeing? I know self-employed people can sometimes have a tough time. Self-employed people are probably one of the biggest industries that's been hit with all the changes, Um, mostly in the way they look at income. Because as you know, Blair, being self-employed, you're, you know, smart business, hire an accountant to, you know, try Mm -hmm. to write off as much as you can, pay the least amount of taxes. But when you're turning around to apply for a mortgage, that's going to bite you. So one of the things we do is how we look at the financials, how we look at retained earnings, different places we know that work better with, uh, you know, with self-employed people. And then uh, additionally, I think when you talked about the stress test, or you didn't say the stress test, but one of the changes that's taken place is a stress test, which has definitely bought in, a, taken a bite out of people's ability to buy, how much they qualify for, their ability to refinance, their ability to transfer mortgages. So, you know, a lot's changed. Mm-hmm. Interesting. If, you, if, if you're in this situation where you're thinking about, okay, we want to make a change, maybe remortgage the house or get a new mortgage, go see Mark. Uh, his name's Mark Fidget. Uh, he's Vancouver-based mortgage consultant and broker, has over 20 years of experience, as you've, as you've heard, and easy to access. Uh, he's a member of the Verico uh, Mortgage Network, and you can access him through uh, www.advancedequity.ca, right? I can get a hold of you through them. That's correct, Elaine. Awesome. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, that Mark's been on Dollars and Cents before. And Mark, we're just so happy that you were able to be with us. Grateful for having you having me back. Thanks. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. This segment is all about ways to save money. And these tips aren't from Blair or from a book or from an author, but they're ideas that Blair's put together from real people who have had to deal with serious money issues uh, and get out of debt either through bankruptcy or consumer proposal or whatever. In any event, there are people that have come to Sands and Associates to get some assistance in doing this. And he's come up with a great list of things that you can do. Um, and this is, what's the first one you want to talk about? Yeah, the first one, just because I think it's so important and it's something I'm pretty passionate about. It's the idea of banking for free. It's that, and to put it simply, I don't think anybody should be paying a monthly fee to the banks for their daily accounts. But don't we have to? You would think so, but no. Really? I haven't paid a bank fee, and God, it's going back to the late 90s now, um, because there are so many options for no-fee bank accounts, and I have yet to find any of my needs that can't be met by a no-fee bank account. Okay. So uh, my background is I was with President's Choice Financial for you know about 20 years or so, and they've just changed this past year to Simply Financial, so S-I-M-P-L-I-I for anybody who's going to look it up. Um, and this is something that's not heavily advertised. I'm convinced the banks don't want you to know a whole lot that these things exist. And especially with President's Choice now not being the brand, you wouldn't necessarily know about it. But Elaine, no fees ever. 
for the account every month. I don't pay any fees. Really? I can use CIBC bank machines anywhere that they are with no extra fee on top of that. Uh, if I need to deposit a check, I can either, you know, go to the bank machine, CIBC, or like every other bank these days, you just take a picture of it with your phone. Okay. So when I sit down with clients and they're budgeting, you know, $15 a month for bank fees or $20 or $10, I say, you know, you can do that. And if you want to be with one of the big banks, you know, for whatever you think that gets you, that's fine. But if you want to have a quick way of putting, you know, 10 or 20 bucks back in your pocket each month, go to a no-fee bank account. Okay. So, and it's not just banks, it's credit unions as well. There's mm-hmm. fees built into credit union stuff. Yeah. Um, so this is this is finding finding the places where they don't charge fees, mm. not just deciding not to pay the fees that are being charged. Because that's what I thought you were saying. Oh, good, good luck with that. Yeah, no, no, if you signed on, they're going to get that money from, from your account. Um, Here, I thought you had some sort of magic way of getting out of paying that. No, not that I've Funny. ever heard of, but no, just, just just don't play the game, essentially. So again, Simply is one that I have a lot of clients who've, who've, who have used it, and I tend to recommend it. Um, Tangerine is another, again, a virtual bank, no branches, but that means that you don't pay any fees. And I believe EQ3 is even a, a new one as well, So there's or EQ Bank. There's, there's just so many that are coming up right now. Um, but again, not heavily advertised, something you need to look for yourself, but save yourself the money. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Um, we've talked about setting a realistic budget, mm-hmm. uh, selling stuff in your house that you no longer use, but could have value to somebody else. And the fact there's so many places you can do that. Uh, keeping shopping lists before you hit the hit the stores, always a great one. Um, what about drinking more water? I thought this was very um, environmentally friendly of you mm-hmm. and healthy of you to include in your list. Yeah, it, it seems just simple, but there's really a lot that, that, that really comes from here because, you know, just being hydrated every day, uh, it just helps you in so many ways for your health benefits. Um, you know, you're going to think more clearly, you're going to be more healthy, your skin's going to look better, all that stuff. But also from a financial point of view, you know, if you're going out, out to, to eat or to drink, where does a restaurant make most of their profit? It's on the alcohol or alcohol. even on the, the softer drinks as well. You know, yeah. even if it's two or three bucks, it's, you know, two or three cents of actual cost of what goes in there. Exactly. Um, and if you're just pretty focused on, you know, all I need is tap water. Well, tap water is never a charge. So even, you know, fancy restaurants, you might pay, you know, five or eight or $10 even for, you know, a bottle of sparkling or, or a flat spring water. Um, you know, Vancouver, we've got incredible tap water, Victoria, all, all of that. So, you know, we really don't need to be concerned about getting bottled water. So save yourself the funds, drink lots of water, you know, carry one of those reusable water bottles, which don't have to cost a whole lot of money. And that's a really good environmental tip as well. Yeah. It's crazy. Definitely don't, you know, don't invest in all these disposable plastic bottles. And now I've heard recently, don't leave them in your car because the chemicals can leach out. And Absolutely, like that. yeah. So, they they yeah. just re, it's yeah, yeah with the heat. Oh, yeah, yeah, brutal. Yeah. So drink more water. Everyone will be better off. Okay. Um, staying with the um, uh, what we consume in our bodies, avoiding prepackaged and fast foods, and this isn't just for the health benefit of it, mm-hmm. but the cost. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it, it takes a bit of discipline because you've got to plan ahead. But the idea of planning out your meals for the week and then figuring out how you're going to use your leftovers, even if you're a single person or a family of two, um, you know, you could have lunches, you could have some leftovers, different stews, different things like that. So you have a lot more versatility if you're cooking for yourself and then again, dealing with, with what, what's remaining at the end, uh, rather than if you're buying prepackaged foods, which usually very high in salt, again, yeah. a lot of, you know, disposable packaging is just going to end up in the landfill. Um, and if you're not buying your lunch, or sorry, if you're not bringing your lunch to work, well, then you're buying it every day, and that can quickly add up as well. You know, even if you're reasonable and you know eating fast food, you're probably not doing the best thing for your health. 
and you could definitely save some money if you were to make your own meals and bring them to to work or to school. Yeah, no, those are really those are really good uh, really good suggestions. Mm-hmm. They do definitely take a bit more work, a bit more planning, uh, but at the end of the day, it's just so much better for your uh, pocketbook as well as your digestive system. Mm-hmm. Uh, bad habits, hard hard to quit yeah. when you're feeling stressed about financial difficulties. Yeah, I think that there's no clients that have come into me, you know, they're at the end of their their rope and I tell them they should also quit smoking. Right. You know, it, it's just not going to happen if they're dealing with so much financial stress, you know, sometimes the smoking or ideally to a lesser extent, but even alcohol, that can be a bit of a, of a coping mechanism and neither are healthy for you no. uh, physically and obviously neither are healthy for your bottom line, your pocketbook as well. Um, so again, not trying to make value judgments on anybody. I've got smokers very close to me in my family who they'll never quit and that's just their personal choice. Yeah. Uh, but when you sit down and you add up exactly how much money is being spent on you know a pack of cigarettes or half a pack a day uh, very quickly that money being redeployed elsewhere um, can really solve a lot of financial problems and can give you a whole lot of pride too you know the pride of being somebody who's you know quit smoking and you know the x number of years or someone who's quit drinking in x number of years um, you know it, it's something that you can take pride in saying well not only do I have a better financial situation but also from my health point of view um, you know I've beat the nicotine addiction or the alcohol addiction or something like that so yeah. there's huge amounts of support that exist out there uh, you know for anybody who's ready to take the next step um, but again it's something the person has to be ready for and if you're in an incredibly stressful situation um, you know that might not be the first thing that comes to mind but definitely something that is worthwhile to investigate and remember just so you don't think Blair's up on a big soapbox. These are suggestions that came from real people, real clients um, that he's had a had the privilege of of working with over the years uh, to get out of their financial difficulties. And these are their suggestions. Mm-hmm. Uh, remember to turn off the lights. I love this one. Yeah, so it's like you can hear your your mom or your dad just echoing in the in the back of your mind. You know, turn off the lights when you leave the room. Um, it can add up over time. Obviously, not going to be the difference between you having to do a consumer proposal or not. <laughs> no. um, but it does speak to just having that consciousness that you know, if I'm not using something, if I'm not getting benefit from it, whether it's turn off the tap, turn the lights off, you know, close the fridge door, turn off the stove, different things like that. Uh, it all speaks to just a broader sense of just really, you know, if you watch your pennies where they're going, obviously the dollars take care of themselves over time. Yeah, you've. Included investment in quality as part of this list, uh, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Yeah, and, and this, you've got to be a little bit careful, but, um, you know, probably most people can think of a situation in their life where they've had various options where they could buy something that was a little bit more expensive, uh, but hopefully would have lasted longer, and they opted for the less expensive option and had to replace it, you know, two, three, or multiple times. Um, so, you know, if it's something like a nice pair of shoes, you might think, well, this one costs a little bit more, but if you're going to wear it for 10 or 20 years, you're going to maintain them the right way, well, then you'll be better off than having bought, you know, five cheap pairs of shoes in that same sure. amount of time um, that, you know, you'll just cycle in and out of. So look for quality where it makes sense, um, but, you know, don't be married to just because it's a design or because it's a lot more expensive that it's actually better quality. You really need to look more at the build, you know, where it's from, what are the materials. Yeah, fair enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, avoid impulse buying. It's kind of a no-brainer, right, that you would do that. Mm-hmm. But it's so easy to do that uh, t- in today's, you know, sort of retail climate that we live in. Yeah, and, you know, just one little tip on this. I know we're getting bumping up on the end here, Elaine. Yes. But, uh, you know, just one quick thing, and this is what a client said to me, just three words, shop your closet. 
So before you go out, look through everything you've got there. There may be things you haven't worn or different combinations. And if you really inventory your closet before you go out, you'll be less likely to have an impulse purchase because it'll be top of mind, fresh in your mind. What do you actually have at home? And you don't need two of that or three of the other thing. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin. That's Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.